way of drawing that out while I was shaking as many hands as I possibly could. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, where the title of the sermon today is pretty scary, but it's not going to be that bad. Um, so uh, I've, I've preached a lot scarier sermons, but uh, you'll see why it's entitled that. But let's just pray and ask God's word to work in our hearts as we look into his word. Father, we want to come before you asking your help for your grace for illumination, for understanding of your truth so that we can just know what your word says to us. Father, we want to know your truth. We want to understand it and we want to apply it, live it out that you might be glorified. Father, we pray for the Vantreses and this the family who are grieving the loss of a mother or a wife. And Father, we pray that your abundant grace would be upon them. We do thank you that Karen is now with you and she's no longer suffering. And Father, she's able to worship you perfectly as we are only to able, able to worship you imperfectly here now. Father, we long to be with you ourselves and look forward to the day when we can stand before you blameless with great joy. Father, as we look into your word, may it pierce our hearts, may it change us and challenge us that we might be glorified um, through Christ that we might be exalted because of your grace, that we might be seated in the heavenlies because of what you have done. Father, we are so grateful that you save unworthy sinners. May we respond in like kind. May we be lights in this world and walk around proclaiming Jesus to all those who need you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you have ever thought about hell and people suffering there, the scriptures have a lot of things to say about it. We've talked about this a lot. Several people have come to me and said, how come you're always preaching on hell? It's like, well, that's what Jesus talks about. So um, that's it. You know, I mean, I just preach what's in the next passage and Jesus talks a lot about it because it's important. Uh, It's described in the Bible as a place of agony, of flames, of you know, torment of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think a lot of times we, we think that all who end up in hell will just kind of suffer the same degree of pain and misery. And, and, uh, and that's just how it is. I think some have the idea that, you know, hell's a place where they can party with their buddies and, and be with the people that are their kind and kind of have a good time away from the presence of God who isn't trying to control them and hassle them. But the scriptures make it clear that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Thomas Watson, in his work, The Mischief of Sin, probably has the best section on degrees of punishment in hell that I've ever written. It's just a short chapter in his book. But he writes, quote, the coolest part in hell is not hot is hot enough. But there are some who shall have a hotter place in hell than others. Also go into the fiery prison, but some sinners God will thrust into his dungeon, end quote. Watson goes into great detail discussing from the word of God those sins that are greater sins and bring greater condemnation. And it just so happens that our text this morning is one of the key texts that teaches that there are different degrees of punishment in hell, hence the title of the sermon. So as we go through and we look at the text this morning, what I want you to remember is that Jesus is describing the kinds of sins 
that bring people greater judgment in hell. And he doesn't talk about axe murderers and serial killers either. He talks about religious people, people who are very religious, who really know the Bible well, as people who will receive the greatest judgment. Kind of unexpected, but that is how it is. As Jesus is up on the Temple Mount, it's Tuesday before his death. He's going to be crucified later in the week. It's his Passion Week. It's also Passover. The Jews have come from all over the place. They're just packing the Temple Mount. And Jesus, because of his triumphal entry, because they're declaring him to be Messiah, because of his miracles... Because he's in a debate with the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, which had the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the Herodians, kind of the whole ruling Jewish council. Because he's been kind of in a conflict and a debate with them, the the people have just crowded around to hear him, to learn from him, and to watch him go toe-to-toe with the experts in the law. He has already um, silenced the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. And now he goes after the scribes, the lawyers. Uh, These are the people who, uh, you know, before the printing press, if you wanted a copy of the scriptures, somebody needed to write it out by hand. And so they would sit down and had very detailed procedures to make sure they could copy the Hebrew scriptures exactly and preserve them. We know from the Dead Seas, they did an excellent job. The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, show us some of the amazing exactness that uh, before that we, we didn't have. We had Hebrew manuscripts from about 900 A.D. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, we discovered, for instance, a complete scroll, scroll of Isaiah, which matched the one that came some uh, 1,100 years later exactly. So they were good at it. And, of course, in copying the Bible all day, you begin to be very good at it. And so if you uh, knew the law really well, you could then represent people before the Sanhedrin, just like lawyers today and courts today. They would have the, the Jewish court and people would need, have problems and go before and you would get yourself a lawyer and hire that lawyer to defend you or whatever. Um, and so that's what the lawyers did. And now Jesus is on the Temple Mount and he has already had these dialogues we've been looking at with these other groups. They're all trying to discredit him because they don't like him. Um, They don't like him claiming to be the Messiah and they know what the scriptures say and they match up with Jesus's life. They know what Jesus has done and it matches up with what the scriptures say about the Messiah. They know for certain about all the prophecies that relate to the forerunner, John the Baptist, and that John the Baptist fulfilled them all. The people are crying out. Jesus is showing them from the scriptures, but they just don't want to believe. And so now he stands up on the temple mount and he goes after the scribes. And so if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 20, verse 45 through 47. We're going to look at these three verses. You can follow along as I read or just listen. It says, and while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief pleas chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers these will receive greater condemnation from this text we have two main points first 
a warning not to act like a scribe. And then there are six ways we aren't to act like scribes. And then finally, um, uh, a warning to that those who do act like scribes will receive a greater judgment in hell. So the first thing, beware of acting like a scribe. Notice the little beginning there. It says, and, which tells us it's the same day, the same moment. He's just got through talking uh, to the Pharisees and silencing them uh, when he brought out Psalm 110. We went over that uh, last week and he's, they're silenced. They didn't know what to say. It's right after that. All the people are there. The huge multitude, the religious leaders and his disciples are on the temple mount. Thousands of people. And second, notice it says, while all the people were listening. So they're all listening. Now, it says also that he says to his disciples at the end of verse 45. So he's speaking to his disciples specifically. And this is important because he's giving the believers, his followers, specific instruction about not being like these unbelieving scribes which tells us something right from the beginning, and that is, whatever their problem was, it was infectious, even to believers. So you could be a believer and fall into the sins that characterize these scribes' lives. And so he is speaking to his disciples, everyone is listening. And so in kind of one fell swoop, he rebukes the scribes and warns the people and warns his disciples. Religious hypocrisy is really not the problem. Their bigger problem is unbelief. And religious hypocrisy is nothing more than the symptom of their problem of unbelief. And that is why Jesus warns against the sin. But there is a difference between being dominated by hypocrisy and pursuing a life of hypocritical religiosity and then falling into it periodically as a believer. There's a huge difference. Keep in mind that what Jesus is exposing here, he's exposing in the earshot of the scribe. Now, just imagine this. Imagine, you know, even just being in a small group like this, you know, not thousands but just a small group like this and having me point out, do you see that person? Don't be like them. And then I list six different things you do and warn everybody not to be like you. I mean, wouldn't that kind of make you mad? Embarrass? Wouldn't you want to like just melt and just disappear? Maybe it'd make you want to get rid of me. And this is what's going on. And he says, look at the verse 46. This is where the main command is in the text. Beware of the scribes. And I'm sure when he said that, they kind of all went. And, then, you know, you just need to ask. You need to stop here and ask, you know, we're to be like Jesus, right? How is this loving? I have people tell me that all the time. You know, how come you name people and how come you expose people and how come you say this is wrong and this is, I mean, wouldn't it be better to just not confront them and make them feel good as they believe their, you know, doctrines of hell and damning heresies and kind of coddle them and make them feel good in their rebellion so you can win them to Christ? No. Jesus is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. 
There is this twisted thought in the minds of some that the way to win somebody is to make them feel comfortable in their rebellion against God. That is not from the scriptures. They need to be confronted. They need to be told to repent, commanded to repent. That's what God tells us to tell them. They need the gospel. There's a heaven. There's a hell. If you go this way, you'll end up in hell. If you go this way, you'll end up in heaven. There's the free gift of eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn from your sins. Your idol is wrong. And of course, when people love themselves or their idol, they don't like you attacking it. And their idol was self. And Jesus goes after it big time. Very big time. Somebody was going to walk in a minefield. You don't just say, well, I know there's mines out there and they're probably going to get blown up, but they really want to stroll in that area and they're very convinced it's going to be okay. And so I won't say anything because after all, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to get in a conflict with them. And so be warm and filled and I'll plug my ears and bow down so I don't get any shrapnel on me when you blow up. See, that, that's not a loving thing to do. That is the unloving thing to do. A lot of times when you preach the truth to people, they, they get angry. I mean, we heard testimony, if you're here for the baptism, how, um, you know, and this is pretty common. People say things like, yeah, I came here and I heard you one time and I thought, man, I'm never coming back here again. You know, they, they're angry. And then there's something that happens during the week that God's spirit begins to work on them. The truth begins to kind of just eat into their heart and they start to go, well, I guess I'm going to go back to that legalistic church again. (laughs) And then pretty soon they're getting baptized and God's grace has overcome them and they've been convicted of their sin. Yeah, it's a battle. It's a battle. Um, it, It takes God's grace to overthrow a stubborn heart. And truth must confront error. And it creates antithesis, attention there. And that's just how it is. J.C. Ryle said in a sermon entitled Alive or Dead, quote, he is your best friend who tells you the most truth. And you know what? Sometimes truth that, you know, you're, you're on your way to hell, you're worshiping a false god, this behavior is, you know, wrong, it's sinful, you're living an idolatrous life. Those things a lot of times cause people to be angry. But like Spurgeon says, they may leave angry, but God has put a hook in their jaw. And a lot of times he will reel them in still. And we need to remember that when we want to love people, Our first priority is to what? To love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that love rejoices in the truth, but not in unrighteousness. And that there are times when in showing love to God, we have to offend men, right? That's what Jesus said. That's what he meant by, you know, unless you hate your father and mother and brother and sister, you know, you cannot be my disciple. Well, Jesus wasn't saying, you know, go around and hate your parents all the time. Because he commanded us to love our parents. So you say, well, what is he talking about? There are times when you either need to follow the Lord or you need to follow your parents. And so who are you going to choose if they tell you to go in two different directions? You say no. 
to the one. You offend the one to follow the other. And so God must be the first priority. The gospel is a stumbling block. It confronts error. It calls for people to repent and to turn for sin and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to to come to him humbly and say, I am a sinner. I know I have sinned. I know I have broken your commandments. I know I can't save myself. I need you to save me. And face it, when you attack somebody's idol, their lifestyle or whatever, it doesn't go well with them. That makes them angry. And surely that's what happened when the scribes heard their name called out. And then Jesus gives six different types of behavior the scribes exemplified that we should all strive to avoid. Look at verse 46. The scribe, Jesus says, are those who like to walk around in long robes. I mean, just think about the people who have, you know, special hats and robes and tassels and garments and whatever. And why do they wear them? Because when you see it, you think, oh, that person must be righteous, holy. I mean, look at the velvet on that robe. And it's silk lined with gold tassels. Obviously a show of righteousness, not But this is what they did. They walked around. Notice they didn't just wear the robes. They walked around with the robes. Why? Because they're like um, fishermen trolling for salmon. They're, they're, you know, you kind of go around. You got to expose yourself. So you go walking around to expose yourself to people. They go, whoo, look at that. That's quite the robe. He must be important. He must be godly. God must be blessing him. Look at that robe. Now, it is true that in, in one respect, our external appearance does reflect our inward heart condition, doesn't it? I mean, if you love the Lord and the Lord says you need to be modest, then, of course, your external appearance is going to demonstrate your internal heart attitude, isn't it? You're going to dress in such a way that you show love to God and love to your neighbor by not causing them to stumble. However, to dress in such a way to make people think you're something you're not, that's a whole different thing. Or to make people think you're righteous because you wear something, that's really being immodest. Immodesty is whenever you attract attention to yourself for selfish purposes, not the glory of God. You know, if I come to church and I have some sort of exotic hairdo or dress or tattoos or piercing or flashing gold and, you know, whatever. If you keep ducking because the diamond on my ring keeps blasting you in the eye. You know, and all you can think about the whole time, man, look at the size of that diamond, man. Look at the size of that diamond. I mean, you're not hearing the sermon. You're like, that must be 10 carats. You know, I mean, how could he afford that? He's our pastor. Where do you get that money? You know, all the time you, you can't, you can't think of anything except, except look at that. Look at that. See, I am distracting you from what? From God, from worshiping God. I am being immodest. I'm promoting me. Look at me. Give attention to me. And then there are degrees of immodesty. 
For instance, if, you know, some guy were to come in here and, you know, dress in wild colors and glue some fluorescent sponges to his head, and he would come in here, we'd all know and go, whoa, sponge head. Look at that. Now, we might look at him and we might like, whoa, he could attract attention to himself. You know, if you saw him on the street, you just go, wow, he's got sponges on his head. Um, you know, it doesn't really cause you to, to stumble. You, you don't want to be like him. Um, but he is attracting attention to himself. That is kind of like the least degree of modesty. It's just look at me. A worse degree of immodesty would be to attract attention to yourself so that people would envy or be jealous of or covet what you had. Recently, I was walking by a storefront and I saw this really exotic, you know, like a formal dress. It was one with all the sequins and all the pleats and the gold and, you know, whatever. So I took a picture of it on my cell phone and I sent it to my wife. For you people who are older, you can do that now. Um, anyway, so I sent it to my wife and I said, I'm thinking of buying you this. And later I told her, you know, it, it, it'd be really good to wear that to church. You just blend right in. And she said, oh yeah, right. But it would be immodest, wouldn't it? I mean, everybody would be looking, everybody would be staring, you know, this big flash. Now there's certain contexts where something like that would be fine if you went to you know, a ball and, and, you know, as long as his dress was modest and everybody was kind of dressed to the hilt, I mean, okay. So everybody blends in because that's the context, you know, a wedding. I mean, you know, the bride is decked out, but she is the center of attention. She is supposed to be the center of attention. So she is, if she comes down, dun, 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 everybody's looking at her. I mean, you know, in that context is good. But what if some woman decided I'm bringing my wedding dress to church this morning. She wears it to church and everybody's like, whoa, um, you know, there's all these comments. Oh, look at that. Oh, I love the lace on that. Oh, look how shimmery that is. And oh, it's so gorgeous. And oh, look at the detail on that. And all the guys are making those comments. <laughs> and instead of worshiping God, what's happening? People are looking at the person. So in that context, it would be immodest. In another context, it wouldn't. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Likewise, they want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, which is proper for women making a claim to godliness. He says, listen, you want to dress up? Dress up with some good works. But don't stick out. Don't do the costly you know, stuff. What happened is the rich people were coming to church and they were wearing their crown jewels, you know, and everybody was, all the poor people were looking, going, wish I wish I had one of those rubies. I wish I had some of that gold. And they couldn't worship the Lord because this person was making a display. They were being immodest. Peter says in second Peter chapter three, something very similar in verses three and four, your adornment must not merely be external. Notice he doesn't say be ugly. For Jesus, there are some who have this idea that, you know, you, you should be ugly. Uh, I just showed my, my wife a text from, from, from uh, Jeremiah where God says, I brought you in land. I made you beautiful. I wanted you to be beautiful. But then the error was not in Israel being beautiful. The, the error was in Israel then trusting in their beauty and using their beauty for wicked purposes. 
And he just says, you know, let it not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold and jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in sight of God. He says, listen, you want to impress people? Then have a godly character and do godly works. That's what Paul and Peter say. But don't make yourself a man lure. And don't turn yourself into a one woman fashion show. So people are always looking and noticing and coveting what you have because you have it and they don't. It will distract people from worshiping God. It's, it's, it's evil. And then there's a worse degree of immodesty. That is somebody's wearing something tight or see-through or revealing or skimpy or low-cut or short or whatever to showcase their body. And to tempt other people to lust after them. That would be a greater degree of immodesty still. It's, it's so common in, in our society that, you know, people just think, well, what's the big deal? Everybody else is doing it. Yeah, but who are you living for? Everybody else? Are you trying to line up with the world or with what God says? And if you're out there thinking, oh, maybe I should have worn something different. Believe me, other people are thinking that too. Listen, when, when, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, what did God do right after that? He clothed them. Now, did God not know what they looked like? There was only animals. They didn't care how they dressed. So why did God clothe them? Because immodesty is wrong. That's why. It's sinful. It's carnal. Why? Because it says this, look at me, lust after me, put your attention on me. The adulterous woman in Proverbs chapter seven, verse 10 is described as dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart to be so selfish, to tempt other people to immorality, to lust, to actually use yourself. I mean, that's why there's a pornography industry. You know that, don't you? People go, oh, yes, well, women are being exploited. They're volunteering for it. They're volunteering for it. The kind of immodesty that Jesus warns about in our text, though, is the worst kind of immodesty of all. It is to deceive others into thinking you are extra religious because of certain religious garments. You ever noticed in like, you know, the apostate religions, the false religions of the world that don't preach the gospel, that don't have holiness, you have just, I mean, think about what the Pope wears. Think about that. His mitre, the gold cane, the staff, same thing in the high church of England, same thing. I mean, he looks like the Pope, but he can be married. And think about the great Orthodox churches. I've been in them where you walk in and there's gold everywhere. I mean, there's no pews for people to get taught anything. There's no pulpit for anything to be preached from because they just bring people in to worship icons and to just marvel at the gold as if the gold is a great blessing of God. And if you have a lot of gold, obviously God is blessing you. You know what? The only people who think that are worldlings. Because they love the world and the things of the world. And so if you just take some gold and wrap it around something religious, it's like, oh, it's God. Because it is their God. But do you think God is up there in heaven when he looks at all this religious stuff and saying, man, that is impressive. 
I wish I could make something like that. Man, they are godly. Look at the gold embroidery on that robe. Listen, he's impressed with men and women who love him from the heart, who tremble at his word, who love him and express their love for him by doing his word. That's what God is impressed with. Not with outward displays. Look at verse 46 again, where we see the second behavior to beware of. The scribes, it says, love the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Notice where they're in the marketplaces. That's because where that's all the people are, right? I mean, if you're going to get some greetings, they're going to go fishing for greeting. See what? What? You, you go where the market are. All the people there, you walk in your robe and everybody can see that you're very religious and very righteous because of what you're wearing. And then you just kind of stroll around, you know, trolling, looking for greet. Oh, most reverend and learned Dr. Hughes, let us bask in the wake of your turbulence and get behind your shadow. And, and, and then could I just spend some time in your most holy presence? Well, I I guess I could give you a few crumbs. Now, what is that? I mean, is that giving glory to God? That is self-seeking. That's not Christian behavior. I mean, why lift weights and take steroids until your arms swell up to the size of football and then just stay at home? You know, I get totally, you know, decked out with the high heels and the short skirt and, uh, you know, the makeup and the, you know, the super hairdo and whatever, the flash and look like Barbie if you're just going to, you know, walk around your backyard. Like you go to the mall. You go to the mall with your muscle shirt so people go, whoa, look at that guy's guns, man, whoa. And then you look around and there's some girl, hi, I'm Barbie. And you just could stand around, you know, you're looking away and you just see all the guys kind of craning and she's just like, oh yes, look at me, am I something? You want them to notice you, you want them to admire you, you want them to praise you, to envy you, to feed your ego. And that is self-seeking behavior, and it is wrong, and Jesus condemns it. Billy Bailey said, quote, No person can foster the impression that he or she is great and exalt a great God, end quote. Look at the middle of verse 46, where we have the third behavior to beware of, and they love also the chief seats in the synagogues. Again, in the synagogues, uh, used to be kind of like Calvary Bible Church. We used to have chairs. Remember the chairs? Yeah, I lobbied for those to go away. I think we used, made firewood out of them. Uh, but then we have these chairs, you know, and, and they had chairs in the synagogue. And so it was like this, you know, uh, the, the Christian church has patterned what we do after the synagogue. Did you know that? They pretty much did the same things we do. They had sing some hymns. They had prayer, scripture reading, um, you know, taught. Same stuff we do. And so what was interesting is in the synagogue service, there were people who were honored and they were asked to sit in chairs. Well, they got to sit up front and everybody had to got to look at them. So they sat there the whole time listening to the message. You know, look at me. I'm up front, am I? And you're not. It's because I am special and you're not. And admire me while I feel sorry for you. And that's how it was. 
And they wanted those chief seeks. They, they're, they're, wor- they're working, they're, they're manipulating to get those chief seats. Now, I just want you to know, it's not wrong to be put into a position of honor, but if your heart lusts after a position of honor, if you're working and manipulating and trying to drop hints so you can be honored and receive the glory, this is the problem. You know, I want to be up front and I want to sing my solo and I want to play my instrument and I want people to see how awesome I really am and get praise from people and get admiration from people. All of that is self-seeking, not God-glorifying. And if someone is allowed to be this way in the church, it infects other people. That's why Jesus is warning the disciples and us in this text. It becomes a plague and it spreads and other people want to have their spot. Well, they got to, so I should get to. And how come I can't? And it's like, well, as soon as you hear that, you just fire the whole batch. Look at the end of verse 46. We see the fourth bad behavior to beware of. And they love the places of honor at banquets. And again, banquets are places where what? There's a lot of people. And so, you know, you know, how banquets are, you see this at a wedding, you get to see the bride and the groom, they're up there with, you know, the maid of honor and the bridesmaids or whatever, and the best man and the groomsman, and they get to sit up there because it's a place of honor. And so at banquets, you know, they thought, oh, if I could just sit up front, if they could just see me up there in front, they would know that out of all the people who could have been up there, I'm up there. I got chosen and they didn't. I'm important. I'm special. A while back, the Shepherds Conference, they have an alumni banquet. And, um, and so Lisa and I were going to go. So we signed up. And at least I thought we did. I thought she signed us up. And she thought I signed us up. And neither of us signed us up. And so, but when it came time for the banquet, we just thought, you know, um, we got our call. We never got any, like, you know, acknowledgement. So I call and say, yeah. I said, you know, we never got anything. I said, oh, you didn't sign up. It's like, oh, I said, sorry. Okay, so here we are. We're in our formal attire, and, you know, we need to do something, have some dinner before we go to the, to the, the service there at the Shepherd's Conference. And so I said, well, I think I'll probably take you to a fine, fine restaurant. So we're going to go to Taco Bell for a romantic <laughs> getaway. Um, anyways, but then right before we left, uh, we get a phone call and say, hey, a seat has opened up. You can come. It's like, great, we'll be there. So we drive there and, you know, we're all standing in line in the hallway waiting to go into the banquet room and <clears throat> all my buddies are there that I graduated with, guys I know from seminary. And, and there's about 40 tables in this room and there's kind of like the, the higher number of tables in the back and towards the front they get lower and lower and lower and then like the one in the front center is table number one. And so as we're going through and they're going at table 39, table 28, table, you know, 32. And uh, so one of my friends says, so what's yours? I don't know. Let me get my piece of paper. And I look and it's table number one. He goes, you're sitting at table number one. (laughs) I said, well, looks like it. He says, man, that's where John MacArthur's sitting. He says, that's where Ian Murray's sitting. You you get to sit at the the, the, the table. How would you do? I said, well, I forgot. I don't know. (laughs) And then I had to sit there all night talking to Ian Murray, who is a great preacher. He's a premier author. He's, 
you know, former assistant to D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest English preachers who's ever lived. He's the founder and editorial director of Banner Truth Trust. He's a lover of Puritans, especially Thomas Watson, has some original Thomas Watson manuscripts. And I had to sit next to him all night and talk with him. And Lisa and I loved every minute of it. But see, that's different. Sometimes, you know, through the providence of God, by the way, I've never sat at table number one since then, but you know, in the providence of God, it happened. So sometimes that's a whole different thing. When God moves you up, then striving to be up. And these people, these scribes were looking for those chief seats. And Jesus says, beware of that. Beware of glory seeking. Fifth, behavior to beware of. Look at verse 47. And it says they devour widows' houses. Stop there. What what does he mean? They devour houses. Well, the word literally means to consume, to gobble up, to eat up. They, They consume the resources of widows. The house is just describing everything the widow had. They ate it all up. You say, well, how is that? Because their husbands would die. The widows would need protection. They need to, you know legal stuff. They needed somebody to take care of them. And so they'd come in very piously, very righteously, very religiously. We're here to help you. We can represent you. There will be a fee. And, you know, it's so hard to, you know, studying um, God's word all day and translating the scriptures. And, well, maybe I could give you a little extra stipend. Oh, that would be good. And, you know, and so they just through manipulation, they begin to just drain these widows of all that they had until pretty soon they lost it all and were out on the street and then went to the next house while they're pretending to be righteous. Instead of saying, listen, you're a widow, I'm not charging anything, let me defend you for the glory of God, they then put themselves and dropped hints and manipulated them. We had a couple here in church that that happened to. I went over there, I was talking with them, visiting one day, and they said, yeah, we have some friends, they're in the ministry. I said, what church they go to? Well, they don't go to a church, but they have a ministry. It's like, oh, really? What ministry is it? Well, I don't know, they really were uncurred, but they've been coming over and telling us that they have great needs and asking us to support their ministry, so we've been giving them money. I said, you're what? Don't give them any more money. And they said, why not? I said, they're conning you. She says, oh. She's looking at her husband. Really? We contacted him, said, if you ever contact this couple again, we're going to call the police. And then they just disappeared. Praying on some of our seniors. And that's what they did. They knew, well, here's a widow. She's, uh, you know, these widows, they're kind of helpless. They're not really aggressive. And we can come in and kind of pressure them and force them and use them to our advantage while they're pretending to be the great righteous religious leaders. Robbing people for personal gain under the guise of religion. Look at the middle of verse 47 where the sixth and final bad behavior to be avoided is given. And for appearance sake, offer long prayers. You know, prayer is good. Prayer is commanded. God wants us to pray at all times and everything by prayer, prayer continually. You know, we're to pray. Praying's good, isn't it? Sure. Unless your motive is, is to make people notice how you pray so that they admire you and your prayers instead of what? Talk to God. Prayer is talking to God. You know, there's times when you have a little prayer group. Okay, we're all going to spend time. We're going to pray. So let's all just pray a little bit. You've got 30 minutes and one person takes up 20 minutes. Oh, Lord. 
who sits among the cherubims. You know, and they just go into this lofty, eloquent speech as they go on and on and talk. And pretty soon everyone's going, oh, you're killing us, you know. They love to hear the sound of their own voice as they pray and pray and pray and pray. Listen, if you want to pray long and you want to pray hard, then do it in your knees in the dark when no one's around. That's where you want to pray long and hard. When you're in a group and everybody has a little bit of time, take a little bit of time and move on. You don't use that as an opportunity to promote yourself so people go, whoa, he can pray a long time. You don't pray up. All night by yourself if you want to pray. But don't do it in a little group where everybody's supposed to be praying. If you find yourself praying long in front of others and short in front of God, you've been infected with hypocritical prayer. And when you pray, don't lapse into Elizabethan English either. You know, some people, you know, oh, Lord. And then when they say, Lord, and they say, God. And then everything is hither and thither and doeth thou. I mean, they don't speak that way the rest of the time, do they? No, they don't. So well, what's the whole King James? Well, I grew up reading the King James and, you know, I just kind of lapse into that. Why don't you lapse into King James, Elizabethan English the rest of the day and the week? Why do you only do it at prayer meeting? I'll tell you why. Because you're trying to impress other people. You're trying to make people think that you're religious or righteous because I can pray in Elizabethan English. Listen, you think that oppresses God? No. Thomas Watson in his work, Harmless as Dove, said, quote, How many souls have been blown to hell with the wind of popular applause? Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul comes and he says, Listen, when we came to you Thessalonians, we didn't try and get your money. We didn't take anything from you. Not only that, when we came to you... We weren't trying to get any glory from you. We told you, we commanded you to repent, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We told you what you had to do because God is God and you're not. We called you repentance. We told you what the truth was. We told you to submit to it. We paid our own way so we wouldn't cause anybody to stumble. And we weren't pleasing men at all. And you know, yeah, you're right. I, I am an apostle and yeah, I'm going to write most of the New Testament. But hey, I didn't say, well, listen, I'm the apostle Paul, so you need to listen to me. I wasn't trying to get any extra meals or extra clothing or anything from you. I was there to tell you what God said. And so beware of using your prayer life as a means to pry from others their praise and to get glory for yourself instead of letting people give it to God. And so how is your scribe quotient right now? I mean, when you think about it, are you dressing to attract attention to yourself? either in church or outside these doors? Do you lust after respectful greetings? Do you desire the chief seats? Do you seek the place of honor? Do you do wickedness while pretending to be righteous and a follower of Christ? Do you 
pray, to be noticed and, uh, and to be admired by other people who go, whoa, that person can really pray. If so, Jesus gives you a warning. This is the second main point. Be afraid of receiving greater judgment in hell. Look towards the end of verse 47. These will receive greater condemnation. Who are these? People who act like scribes. I mean, look at that. I know that if I came in and you came in and said, write down those sins that are the worst sins you could possibly commit, probably none of these would be on there. And these are the ones that Jesus says, religious hypocrisy are the worst sins. And he says, those who commit them will receive greater condemnation. A condemnation is that they will be judged in hell. They will have a legal sentence of guilt passed upon them. He's not speaking of believers. We have passed out of judgment to life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says they will receive greater condemnation. Not just condemnation, but greater degree. And thus the furnace of hell will be heated hotter for them. Watson in his work, A Mischief of Sin, says, quote, If sinners have not lost their reason, they would be persuaded to reflect a little and consider seriously the damnableness of the state of this life. And lay to heart this text dropped from the Savior's own lips. These shall receive greater damnation. In the text, there are three parts. A fiery furnace, damnation. The furnace heated hotter, greater damnation. And the persons for whom this furnace is doubly heated, these shall receive. And we just saw the six things that characterize their life. Religious hypocrisy is a huge sin, especially if you're a leader, especially if you're like a scribe and everybody's looking to you to be the example and you're leading them in an ungodly way. And you remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, right? The, the tabernacle's just completed. Aaron's just been, you know, anointed as the high priest. He's got two sons who are priests, Nadab and Abihu. And all they decided to do is just change the little formula for the incense or do something. We don't really, it says they offered strange fire. We don't know what that meant. But whatever it was, God knew that they were treating him as unholy before the people. And so fire came out from the presence of the Lord, from the tabernacle and incinerated them. God does not like religious hypocrisy. He doesn't like it when people come and go, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and then live like an unbeliever the rest of the week. He killed those two men as an example for us. You remember in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, it says that if leaders, if elders are continue in sin, that is, if they get caught continuing in sin, or even if they confess having continued in sin... He says, reprove them or rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. And this is not talking about church discipline. This is talking about when a person has a position as a leader and he doesn't have integrity in his life and he's living in continual sin and that sin is found out. He is to be brought up before the church and the whole church is to know that he has sinned and lived in hypocrisy as a leader and therefore he is no longer a leader, no longer example, and that everybody would be fearful by his rebuke. Then if he doesn't repent and he doesn't confess his sin, then there's church discipline. And we see the greater degrees of punishment. If you looked at Luke, turn back to Luke chapter 10. Some of you probably weren't even born in Luke 10, but... Um, 
It was so long ago. But in Luke chapter 10, verses 12 and 14, Jesus said this. Luke 10, verse 12. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day for Sodom than for that city. Notice, more tolerable. That is a degree statement. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred to you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But I will be, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in judgment than for you. Notice, he speaks of Sodom first. And, you know, remember about Sodom, there was no righteous people there. I mean, Lot left. And I think his daughters and his wife followed him because he made them. His wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And his daughters turned out to be not all that righteous. God judged the whole city. But think about it. It's going to be better off for them than the people who saw Jesus' miracles. And the same with Tyre and Sidon. Why? Because by receiving more miracles, by hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, seeing the miracles, they had far more responsibility to repent and believe in him as the Messiah. But in rejecting him, they will receive a greater judgment because more was given to them. Also look at Luke chapter 12. If you turn over to Luke chapter 12, verse 47, it says this. Luke 12, verse 47, And the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will, but receive many lash, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So here you have this, this concept again, that if you're given more, you'll be judged more. The, the slave who knows what his master wants to do and doesn't do it, he gets many lashes. The one who does wrong ignorantly still gets lashes, but just a few. And the whole point there is the more information you have, the more judgment that comes across upon you because of your knowledge. When Paul was speaking to the Thessalonians, there were certain Jews who were persecuting them and trying to prevent Paul and his group from preaching the gospel to the Thessalonians so the Thessalonians could be saved. And he describes them in 1 Thessalonians 2.16 saying, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. The worst thing you can do is not reject Christ, but is to fight against somebody else coming to Christ. And that, Paul says, brings uttermost judgment the author of hebrews speaks of those who came into the church were exposed these were jews who understood yeah so it does look like jesus is the messiah it does look like he matches up with the scripture and they started looking hanging around the christians they started learning about the gospel that christ died on the cross for our sins was buried rose again the third day they saw all these people with lives transformed but then they thought man if we give our lives to christ it'll be over for us in the jewish community We will lose our businesses. We will lose our family. We will lose everything. We just can't do it. We just can't part with all of our family and our business and our means of income. I mean, God can't expect that. This can't be the Messiah. And so they reject Christ and then they go back to sacrificing animals again. And the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 29, how much severe punishment 
Do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Why? More knowledge. We see the same thing, for instance, when Peter speaks of those who knew the truth. They came into the church. They knew the truth. They knew the gospel. They turned from their sins. They began to live lives of, you know, of moral purity. They didn't worship the idols anymore. They didn't, you know, engage in immorality anymore. They cleaned up their act. But after a time, they thought, you know, we kind of miss our sinful lifestyle. And so they went back. And this is what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. The whole picture is, is they had fellowship. They had the truth of the gospel. They had all this stuff, but they went back to their sin. And he says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. What was their first state? They were unbelievers on their way to hell. What's their second state? Unbelievers on their way to a greater judgment in hell. Now, if you're sitting out there thinking, Pastor Jack, man, I am a scribe. I, I could write the scribe manual. I know about this. I live this. What do I do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Believe that Jesus died, that he bore in his body your sins as the Lamb of God. He hung in that cross. He shed his blood so that you through faith in him could receive the free gift of eternal life. And then he rose again on the third day. That's it. That's all you got to do. You know, there's only two kinds of hypocrites in the world. Saved hypocrites and unsaved hypocrites. People always say, ah, you Christians are always, you know, are just nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. You're right. Well, we're saved hypocrites. (laughs) Jesus said, I did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. I did not come to heal those who are well, but the sick. I came to save religious hypocrites. That's who I came to save sinners, people who need me. That's why I died on the cross. And that's what Jesus offers. He extends to every one of us the free gift of eternal life. And if you're sitting out there just saying, I know I'm that person. I know I have a religious facade on the outside, but my soul doesn't have God in there. I don't know God. I just know about God. And I'm living this hollow religious treadmill life. Just give your life to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then you can be among the saved hypocrites instead of the lost. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this text where Jesus is so crystal clear and that those greatest sins, surprisingly, are not 
the ones that often come to our mind as the worst sins. But he lists a bunch of sins that religious people commit. People who even know your word. Father, I pray for those here today who don't know you. I pray for those who have never turned from their sin and received Jesus Christ as their Lord, who haven't cried out, save me, Lord Jesus. May you right now move in their heart. May they see that there is forgiveness, there is justification, there is cleansing, and there is life transformation for all who call upon the name of the Lord. May they do that. May you change their life. And may you receive all the glory and honor and praise we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect...